Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Muhammad Mahdi. Lewis Carr is a founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Muhammad Mahdi is a founder and owner of Be Clear, a water company, but he hasn't always been a successful entrepreneur. Lean in as we discuss toxic masculinity, entrepreneurship, and so much more. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker. And today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have Muhammad Mahdi, founder and owner of Be Clear Water Company. Welcome, Mahdi. Thank you for having me on, Mr. Carr. How are you? I'm doing good. Very excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, you supplied the water for the Blueprint Men's Conference 2022. Uh, it was a real hit. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think, you know, Mahdi, I'm a water connoisseur. And uh, I tested it out uh, the day before to see, I'm like, is this going to be good water? Are we just going to be trying to drench our thirst? And, and I have to say, the water tastes pretty good. So uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Uh, I hear you were a military baby and yes. moved around a lot. And uh, how you got into, we'll get into how you got into this water thing. Um, we're going to talk about some reinvention. Sounds good. All right. As you stated, my name is Muhammad Mahdi. Uh, I go by the moniker of just Mahdi or Nurse Mahdi. Uh, and we'll get into that later. Um, I am a, um, a father of three who started his journey and uh, was born in Florida, Tallahassee, Florida, um, and uh, ended up being raised between uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, St. Louis, East St. Louis. And um, uh, I come from a family of uh, six siblings that later got to 11, but we'll go to that. Six siblings that I grew up with, um, my mother and my father uh, divorced early. So uh, being that we're, my father was in the military, my father ended up, his course ended in St. Louis. My mother found her way to Boston after they divorced at an early age. So that goes to why I spent time in Boston and St. Louis uh, in my formative years. Uh, in between, before that, we bounced around from everywhere, as you stated, because of the military. Uh, my mother is a, uh, has always been in education. My father's in social work, um, but they both have always been super um, involved in community and, and believe community life is, is very important. <clears throat> and so they poured into a lot of that. Um, we lived in, like I said, in Boston for the most part because we, my mother had primary custody. So we spent the school years out in, um, in Boston and the summers in uh, St. Louis. Um, yeah. Um, so just hey, going. Where did you, you did, so you went to high school in Boston? No, I actually started high school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I, I'm assuming this, this, all this moving around is because of the military. 
yeah, I think it started that. It was the reason for it. Um, but some of it came to um, being because I kind of uh, found myself or led myself to being involved with being in the streets. My mother worked two jobs to, to care for us. Um, uh, as I believe I said, is my, my mother, she always opened up her house to everyone. So we, we were in a two bedroom with about nine or 10 people. That was my cousins, my siblings, my mother, my grandmother, everybody. Of course they get the rooms. So we got the floor. Um, and Boston was rough, but it was also um, joyful because my mother was, was the type to make cookies, pies, and hug everybody. She's like everybody who's ever met my mother. They love her. And, um, and that's an honor to be able to say it's because she has such a, a loving spirit. And, um, but um, I didn't see that then. So with my mother working two jobs, I kind of found myself attracted to street life. That's where everything was happening. That's where I learned. This is where men do and say what they want, go where they please, and can't nobody tell them anything. You know, I did that while my mother was at work and then came back and listened. But um, uh, I found myself being more attracted to it because I appealed to my mas- what I consider my masculine nature because of but it was what I learned now is that was toxic masculinity. It was a bunch of people not knowing what it meant to be a man, teaching everybody how to be a man. And, um, but I, that's where I found my identity. Um, and to go back, I think a lot of the reinventing myself came to, came to be because I was at a crossroad. And this will later up, come on. I was at a crossroad. And, um, it's almost like they say the, the devil and the angels on your shoulder, right? You know, someone tells you something good. The other one tells you something bad. You kind of go whichever one folks both, right? My crossroads were always because I suffered from identity issues. I didn't know what a black man was supposed to be. I didn't know what a male was supposed to be. I didn't know what a son was supposed to do. You know, these are the times and, and no one knows because you're growing and learning. But when you're growing up so fast and with trauma, you're always in survival mode. And some of that trauma came from, um, and I shared that I always grew up feeling like I didn't belong anywhere. Um, We live in what we call the heart of the hood. Um, But my mother used to ship us. uh, We used to take a a little bus, um, hour and a half to two hours out to uh, predominantly Caucasian schools in Bedford. And uh, when we got out there, we were the poor little black kids that looked like the token people. And, you know, everybody makes fun of them. You know, they're wealthy, they're well off, they're this and that. And here we are with hand-me-downs and rolling up sleeves and rolling up pant legs. And, you know, that's what we considered important at the time. When everybody's talking about the lunchbox or this and that, we had to eat free lunch because we were on the program. So it was obvious like we were being poked at. Uh, And then we bust back to where we're not from the neighborhood we're not going to neighborhood school. So then we tease where y'all come from. You know, we be, we went from the Will Smiths out there to the Carlton's in the hood. So I had to kind of assert myself of what I feel like what was going to give me some respect since sports and wasn't it, or I didn't have anything else at the time other than my hands. Um, because my father taught us, said that uh, a man is only going to learn, a man is only going to get through life by working and fighting. He's going to have to fight 
everything he wants and work for everything he wants. Well, I knew how to fight. <laughs> so um, those, that identity issue there and then the identity issue of always feeling like I didn't belong even in my family because of learning at an early age that my mother was raped, uh, as she says, with, when she was with child. And um, of course, at that time, I didn't know what that meant um, when I heard people make fun of it or my siblings make fun of it and say, you adopted, or that's why daddy's not your daddy or my cousins, you know, that's the low blow they would say, you know, that's why you're not really, you know, those things. And even though children say that kind of nasty it, and without really trying to, to hurt me, it did have an effect on me. So in a house where I didn't feel in place and the school, I didn't feel in place or where I belong. Then now in an area where now I'm accepted, if I put somebody on their back for saying something I don't like, that's where I want it to be. And um, so that toxic masculinity kind of gone. And then as I got older, the story even kind of built up to where now my father, you know, I worked up enough nerve to ask and he didn't want to talk about it. But my mother decided to tell me about it. And she didn't tell me anything about what happened. She told me, she said, your father, she always praised him. I never heard my mother talk ill of my father. She praised him and she said, you know, your, one thing your father did was he didn't let anybody hurt his family. And I think it became a real big blow to him when he felt like he was helpless as a man to actually be able to protect his family. And, and maybe that's when he became to be so mean. I don't know. Or I felt the reason why he and I never had a real tight relationship was because I felt that adds up to where he doesn't feel like I'm his. And every time he sees me, he sees where he fell short or where he feels he fell short. So I always felt there's a disappointment to him. So then I would, as I got older. So what was your relationship like with him when you were growing up? It was one of just fear. It was just fear. My father was very militant, uh, martial artist, uh, militant, always in shape, ate right, didn't watch TV. Um, uh, worked with a lot of prisons and detention centers to try to like save the younger black males. Um, but a lot of our days were spent, like I can tell you like a Saturday morning wasn't like some kids eat cereal and watching TV. We were waking up before the sun rose to go outside in these fields and pick up rocks and sticks in the dark. And with the fear of if I run this lawnmower over a rock or stick and it mess up my blade, I'm gonna tear y'all up. So. <laughs> We would do this before we could eat, before we could play, before we could do anything. And because he felt that he got up. And I know in his mind, he was saying, I'm teaching them how to be young black men that are going to have to be disciplined and hardworking. But as a child, all I saw that was he hates me. You know, uh, you know, this was what these children now, well, society would say, this is abusive, you know, and it may have been some form, but his father was killed on a construction site by some white supremacists at a young age. So everything he learned about being a man was with aggression and anger. And everything that he taught, it only fed my anger and so on and so forth. And this all will flow, no pun intended, into how the water is, because every last part of me ends up why the logo is the way it is, why my children are implemented in it, and why it decided to be water. And um, 
So I got in trouble. First time I got in trouble of, uh, in the neighborhoods, it's okay to fight. Nobody called the police. Uh, like I said, I saw my first murder at eight. I kind of realized like that's where it's going to end up with the people that I look up to. So don't try. Um, I occasionally, we were very intelligent, but I occasionally would do very well in school to give my mother something to brag about because she's always say, where did I go wrong? And so I felt like a disappointment. Um, fast forward, we moved to La Crosse, Wisconsin. I think I was in seventh grade. Now we lived around, my mother remarried to my stepfather. And that's why we moved to, ended up in Wisconsin. So we moved to La Crosse, Wisconsin, where my stepfather was the Dean of Multicultural Service for the University of La Crosse, right? So now this was the biggest house I've ever seen. This is the only house that we've ever lived in. The biggest house I've ever seen, but he had five older sons. And they hated us because their mother and father got divorced and their father got remarried to my mother. And my stepfather was complete opposite of my father. He was docile, he was passive, and his kids were the aggressor ones. They kind of did this. And so I kind of had a disrespect towards my stepfather. And now we're in a predominantly Caucasian neighborhood and school. I get to school the first time, one of these kids, they said, hey, little nigger, go back to juvie where you belong. I didn't know what juvie was because all I know is you go to jail or you don't. But I knew what nigger was and I knew what to do when you heard nigger. And I, I my, myself and this other boy named Gary, who was from Gary, Indiana, who ended up at this school, it was because they were pushing around him and I went to go help. And they said, you niggas go back to Juvie where you belong. And we put a mopping on all of them. It was about seven of those and it was two of us and we put a mopping on them. And our, our principal was Crime Stoppers. He was like something with Crime Stoppers. He did not arrest any of the other kids for fighting, but the police came and got us and arrested us. And that's the first time, the first running I had with, the, with cops and a disrespect towards authority because now everything makes sense. Why F the police, why this and that. They arrested me and they didn't even say anything to these children. They pumped the fear of life in me and they put me in it and I was so afraid. And then I thought about, now my father's gonna find out. I'm about to get in more trouble. Now my mother's going to be disappointed. I'm being in more trouble. But I had to continue this bad, this kind of tough guy image. And so seventh grade, I kind of get out of that, got threatened with detention, went before a judge. Uh, I learned what juvenile was, juvie was now. I learned what that was. Uh, fast forward, um, when my mother starts taking over a school or working with a school in Milwaukee. And now we end up here. Ninth grade, I go here. Um, I learned about sports is super important. And I wasn't able to identify. I found myself in a new place again, feeling like I have to start over. There's no real connection. I feel ostracized again. And um, again, I result to my hands. I felt like that was the only thing that was going to give me an identity. You know, so, I was so, so, so Marty, you, you sound like you was just a bad kid, man. You know, <laughs> I, I was, I was, I was, I was. <laughs> you, you was just a bad kid. All right. I, I was so, struggling to find. We, 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 we go, we go level set there. All right. Yeah. So yes. When was the change? When did that change happen? Did that happen after high school? When when did you say, you know, this ain't working out too well. This ain't leading me down the path that I want. When was that change? It started when 
I was doing some sort of activities that I will not disclose. And uh, these guys were trying to set me up. And um, something didn't seem right. It didn't look right. And I knew it wasn't. And my gut told me it wasn't right. Like everything else wasn't right. But here I couldn't ignore it. And it ended up coming to be, there was two cars. It was at night. Um, and, um, and I had some, something in my trunk and the guy was me at the trunk. And next thing you know, it was a whole shootout in curve. It wasn't like the movies. It wasn't like, you know, you know, everybody does this cool. My heart was pumping. My feet were heavy. You know, I was sweating and that adrenaline was, I was found myself, this was a graduation from fighting. This was now it's going to be life or death. And as much as I had this idea of, I'm going to die young anyway, YOLO, don't matter. That time it became real. It's not that I didn't have run-ins before. I didn't see people killed. I see some friends get killed. I seen some of my friends killed and end up in life and all that stuff or what I consider my friends, but it was happening to me. And, uh, um, Whatever it is dealing with guns, I got a, a, a bullet in my hand and a graze on my back. And I left that place. And at that time, the woman that I was talking to, uh, she was pregnant. And I touched her stomach. And my son kicked. And I want to have you understand, I didn't actually lose my virginity to 18. I, I was scared of all of that, but I always said I wanted to have a son because I wanted to leave something behind. But ignorant at that time, I realized I didn't have anything to leave behind. It was just my name. And uh, from there, I said, hell, I ain't going because when he born, he gonna call somebody else daddy. And that was the start of the change. How old were you at that point, 18? No, 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 no. I was 20, 22. 23 23 23 <clears throat> and what uh, uh let's just say um your career at that point uh was in the streets uh, uh i had been to school i was in college in texas before okay. then but that's why i what, learned what, to what college in texas. texas did you go to i went to katie i started off at paul quinn but they lost the accreditation and i was supposed to be a grown-up so when I got kicked out of college here, I went down there and I was like, I'm not going to make my mom. That's, I was 18. And uh, I had a full academic scholarship at 18. I lost that. I saw the disappointment in my mother's eyes. So I packed my car and I drove to Texas. I didn't know anybody. I said, I'll, I'll learn to be somebody here. And um, I learned two things. I learned that I wasn't grown. And uh, I learned a different side of the streets, the business side of the streets. And, um, and, uh, I brought that back up to up North. I said, it was, it was, that was the profit, you know, down South was cheap up North was, was they pay for anything. So I ended up in Milwaukee and I was going back and forth to Texas and Milwaukee. Like every week I would drive back and forth. And, um, and then I ended up, like I said, I met a woman. I said, I wanted to have a kid and this woman, I, we weren't really, we weren't in a relationship. I just told her I want to have a child. She wanted to be with me. I wanted to have a child. And that's what happened. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't, I really wanted a son. And I always said I was gonna have a son. But it got more real when I touched his hand. And I used to read to my son in the stomach. 
uh, I used to hear my mother talk about how important it is to read to children, how important it is to breastfeed and so on and so on. So I knew I had the nurturing aspect in me. And um, I, 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 I touched my son's, son's stomach, my, I mean, my, uh, my son's mother's stomach, and he kicked. And for me, it was like, kick the crap, kick the BS, kick it. And uh, I, I went cold turkey around there. I stopped hanging around everybody. I stopped doing everything. Um, I started working, little ins and odds jobs. Um, I said I wanted to come up with something so he could be proud of me. And um, fast forward, I went, I went to school for early education. Um, I was an early, edu uh, early education teacher. Uh, when he was young, I said, one of these kids are going to have to have the personality of my son to prepare me so I don't fail as a father, right? I didn't feel like I placed, like I belonged anywhere else, but I said I was going to have a son. I got a son. and He's going to love me because I'm going to be there. So I have to make sure that works so I don't fail that. So you, you, you're teaching at that point, right? Yes. Yes. All right. And how long did you teach? Oh, I mean, that was only about a year, <laughs> two years, probably. Okay. It didn't last and then long. you went from teaching into nursing? I went from teaching to um, administration. Um, I, uh, it was a part of that. I went in from, when I got into administration, I was in school now for nursing. And I just didn't like, I felt at the time of teaching that I really wasn't, I was doing a disservice to children because how I feel like the system is set up is I was only training them to know certain things, but not teaching them how to be the best selves in society, teaching them how to function and operate and maintain a society, but not really thrive and do everything. And so when they say they have to learn this, they have to do this, they're going to be good. So I thought I was a rebel and I was going to take it to administration because I'm going to change something. It didn't really work out. So I went to healthcare. And um, I got into healthcare because at the time of teaching, I was driving to St. Louis to my great grandmother. And I used to talk to my great grandmother all the time. And she was always so nice to me. And whenever I would do laundry, if I was in Texas, or I was doing something, I would call her and I'd say, hey, pretty lady. And she would talk or she would sing and play the piano. She was just a nice little brittle woman. And now when I learned that she was dying, I was going up there to just, you know, say hey tell i love her and when the time goes it'll happen but then when i got there she only took to me she wouldn't take her medication unless i was there she wouldn't she wouldn't speak or she wouldn't do anything unless i was there and so it felt like a very big weight on me that i wasn't able to handle i didn't understand the diagnoses and some of the yelling and screaming and then calling me daddy that i was really i was intimidated this big, I mean, I felt like I'm the big man on campus. I do whatever, but now I'm intimidated by a little old woman. So I was holding her hand and she used to always have me sing this song that I didn't know was called, Let Me Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. Or I want to hold your hand, something about hand and the Beatles. And she didn't know me until I said, hey, pretty lady. And then she says, you used to talk to me in Texas. Mind you, it had been 15 years by then. So I went to there and the part of my nature and my spirit was I didn't like something about it and I had to do something about it because that's what a man does, right? So I went back, I said, I made a, I made a vows to her. I said, I'm going to go to school to be a nurse. And I said that if anybody in my family is going to be in this position, again, I no longer was going to feel helpless, but I was also going to be able to be the provider. I went to school. I left St. Louis 
calling every school on the way there in that five and a half hour drive back. I got a hold of one school and that school said, um, at, at this time I was in the military too. I was in the, the national guard. So I was, um, I hadn't been, I just got back from a deployment and this is why I ended up in, you know, I take a leave from work, leave from everything. And I, and I was going back to Belleville, Illinois, a whole lot of it. I was in the military. I was in the education and I made that drive and I went there and I, and I called them and I said, uh, do you guys, how do you get a nursing program? I don't know nothing about nursing. How do you do it? What does that have to do? He said, well, you have to placement, you have to get on an exam. And I wasn't afraid of all that. Cause I said, you know, I, I never knew, I, I knew I was never a dummy. So I said, okay, I got to take an exam. Then what? He said, well, classes start next week. And the last day to take an exam is today. I said, well, good. I'll be back in Milwaukee in about two hours. Is there going to be somebody that says, sir, this is kind of like, it's unorthodox. I can see if they can have a place for you just to walk in and storm. I said, ma'am, it would be a great honor if you please just do me this service. She went in, come in. She said, you got five hours, but you only have four and a half hours. No, four hours because the test is five hours and you're late. I came in. I took the test, I passed, I started class. I didn't know anything that was going on in class. Um, and that again, I fell out of place again. And the instructors started telling me, the professors, maybe you should drop out, maybe you should do this. It was predominantly white women. They laughing when I asked the question, but I was paying now, so the hell with them. I sat in front of the class, I asked every question. And by my third year, by my third, uh, uh, year or by clinical, it went from book side to patient side. And then I had to learn this goes back for the first time was when I touched my son's stomach. I mean, my son kicking. And then it really clicked when now I started dealing with people in vulnerable stages. I became patient side. I started seeing people very vulnerable. The toughest of men need help getting out of the bed and the oldest of women being as strong as they want to be. And I learned that they were all human. We were all people. I don't care what color you were, how tall you are, what background you were. If you were in that bed, all you wanted was somebody to help you. So, so, so now, Marty, you, you become Nurse Marty. I became Nurse Marty. I was student right. Nurse Marty at the time, but I, I own Nurse Marty because it became a passion of mine. I was so much better than every nurse that I, every nurse that I saw and every student that was going to become a nurse. I thrived. So much so that then I got letter of recommendations when I was still a student. I got the attention of the dean of nursing now because before it was, I was always the bottom of the incident because people would say something because they were trying to get me out the program. Now they wanted to, they wanted to know my story. They wanted me to mentor people. They wanted me to help. But I took that and I said, it's my time now to go back into my community like my parents started. And, and how long did you stay uh, as a nurse? Oh, I was a nurse uh, almost a decade. Okay. So I and became then, a director of nursing. So it became less bedside, more administration out of actually Chicago. And then how did we get to be clear water? I mean, that, that's, that, that's sort of a, a 360. That ain't a 180. That's a 360. That's a 720. That was, <laughs> it, what, it, what it has is I was a director of nursing. And in that time, I, was, I got married. And um, I 
uh, I had two more children. Well, I had one child at the time. And then I was going through a divorce. And what I was realizing was I was on call 24-7. And going back to when I was a father, I said, I can't fail. The one thing I know that I can do well is be a father. And I said, I will no longer from the, I just, it just epiphany hit over me. I was actually in, uh, I was asleep, 3.14 a.m. I was woken up on August 28th, two years ago. And it told me to do it. And I felt like I was drowning. I was in complete sweat. And I already knew what it meant because I had been thinking about the water for six years. I had visited certain things. I've done certain things around nutrition in, in the community, trying to help through prevention through nutrition was my model. A lot of the illnesses I saw come through was the food we put in our mouth, the drinks we put in our mouth. So everybody always asked me this thing of, well, what are you selling? I said, I got a job. I'm not selling anything. What I'm doing is trying to help, right? And then I needed something to sell. I decided water juice was I was going to water down juice. I was going to still have the satisfaction of this, this and blah, blah, blah. But then when I sat at a corporate meeting, um, I was arguing with them about giving someone in need, an unfortunate, a $30 walker, as I saw hundreds of dollars food being wasted in front of that building. I was accepted by them, but my job was to care for patients. And I said, I'd be damned if I'm gonna lose any more time or energy from my children. As these men and women spend time with their children, as they really don't care about people. I had to be the superhero that I didn't have as a child for my children and for everybody else. And so I said, well, I'm going to go in business for myself. Didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I thought about the water. I kept going back and forth. I said, I'm not going to sell no damn water. What am I going to do? But then I looked at plastic studies and realizing how plastic had harmful effects on people. So I started pumping out, you know, try to store your food in glass and do this and do that. And I make my kids do the same thing my father made me do. They get out here and they have to pick up the trash in the neighborhood. And I said, I don't care where we live. It doesn't have to look like this. So my children had this negative thing that I had in my child as a child. I was like, why we got to do it? We ain't throw it down. So instead of crying about something, I said, we do something about it. It clicked with the plastic. A lot of it was bottles, soda bottles, water bottles, chip bags. And then the water has always been. That is the only place I found peace. In all of my chaotic life, peace was always water. I could not sleep unless I had a soundtrack of water. Um, I, any big decision I've ever made, including this of leaving my job and working, I went and I sat by water. And um, water was, was it. And, and like I said, it woke me. I felt like I was drowning. It woke me up in a sweat and it said to do it. And honestly, that moment, everything was clear. Okay. And... Um, uh, I got up within a month. I mocked up. Uh, I continued. I revisited some of those uh, different plants in Colorado, California, uh, Georgia. I said, I got to find some. I saw some of these places. Some of these places I wouldn't even drink. I don't care. Yeah. Some of these waters, they even come in a bottle of convenience. I look at some of those places. I wouldn't even drink anything from them. And if I was going to do something, I was going to do it right. So now I couldn't do plastic. Plastic, I saw it. I knew it was a problem. I knew it negatively affect people. My job is to help people. I have my profession as a nurse. I'm going to be a superhero in my kid's life. I'm going to be a superhero in my own life. Do it right. Be clear, right? Be clear with your intentions. 
be clear with your path. I was at that crossroad and I chose to go the right way. And my name Mahdi means rightly guided. And so I took that. And the, the, the somebody, how did you know where to go? I mean, I didn't. I didn't. What factory? How, how did you find a, a factory, a producer? How did you know what taste? Uh, how did you know any of that? What I told you about when I saw my, when I heard about my father going in and grabbing every man possible to see if they were the ones, what I saw was, you're going to keep on looking until you find. Some of the characteristics and traits that I witnessed of my father growing up, they became, I never had a mentor. I, I, I never had anybody take me under their wing and say, hey, I see this in you. But I've always had people to look at me and say, like, you're better than this. I understand this for certain people, but there's more to you. You're no dummy. You're intelligent. You're this and that. So there have been people in my in my journey that have dropped nuggets in me that I can pull back from now as an adult. But growing up and being where I am, the survival mode was that I was always by myself. So if I wanted something done, like a man would do, he just goes and do it. He goes and does it. And so I, I didn't. A lot. I probably wasted so much time because I don't know how to ask for help. I don't know how to ask for mentorship. I don't. I, I feel like if people see me doing something and they see it's wrong, if it's in their heart, they'll help me. If they don't, I don't know what questions to ask. Like you said, I just jumped in. I just, this is what it is. The dream came to me. It was clear. And I had a job to do. And anytime so, something- So Marty, here at Waymaker, we believe that every successful person has had, has had a Waymaker. Absolutely. Who was the Waymaker? Who was the person? that helped you turn the corner with Be Clear? Who was that person? Everybody that looked at me and made me feel like I wasn't good enough. That was everyone. And when I told you those nuggets, those are the only ones I set my, my eyesight on. But as an adult, like I told you those nuggets, there's my mother who always saw the good in everything. I go back and I look at my father, that discipline and hard work, he dropped those nuggets. Um, and then my son, the birth of my son, seeing that whole process of life was like, death can wait right now. You know, life ain't that bad. So those are the reasons why I am. I've never had a mentor, after-school counselor, a teacher, or certain things like that. Like some people do. I have a coach that believed in them. Or no, I never had any of that. I never, I never had any of that. I think that I displayed so much anger and and lack of respect for authority that nobody wanted to deal with me. <laughs> so, um, so tell us about where is Be Clear? Where where is the water? Where does it come? What does uh, the water come from? Where is it? So Be processed? Clear. Be Clear. Um, I actually visited a company in Colorado and out of uh, um, Los Angeles who bottles it. Um, their factory was was clean. It was clear. Um, everybody was product. Some of the best tasting water I, I had tasted 
um, um, out of the aluminum. They, they, there's only a few people that actually deal with aluminum. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just, I got to work on that. Uh, came up with the logo, the logo, everything on the logo represents something. It's not just an accident. It's not just something I did. Um, every line on it means something. The actually be clear means something. The colors, um, it all has purpose. Everything had to be intentional as what I heard, um, uh, Mrs. Shelton say, like everything had to be purposeful. So you find it online is primarily what it is as I'm learning now sales and marketing on how to get it out there. Um, the one place everybody is, is online at be clear H2O with an O, not a, not a zero, uh, .com. Uh, it's in, uh, some of, uh, smaller or growing businesses here in Milwaukee, like uh, funky fresh spring rolls, which just got picked up by Palermo. So they're growing, um, flower girl in flame, which is a pizzeria and catering company that goes all over. Um, uh, honeybee sage is a wellness, uh, center. Um, and, uh, one of our first sponsors was English Gardner, who was a two-time, um, uh, Olympic, uh, winner, uh, two-time NCAA champion. Um, she took to the water on social media and that's where I learned social media. I said, get on social media then. And, um, so we found it out of there. Um, she tried to talk to the people at Princeton because she coaches there. So mostly online. And then uh, I've been what I call social media prostitution is at nighttime, <laughs> two o'clock in the morning, I get on social media and I look for things that I feel like speak to my spirit. Or I feel like things that I guess I shouldn't say spirit and prostitution at the same time, but I feel like um, things that spoke to me and I go on people's pages at around two something in the morning and I look. And when I ran across one night, I saw something that said Blueprint Summit. When I saw Blueprint, I thought Jay-Z. Then when I thought Blueprint, I thought a plan. I thought like, man, I'm all over the place with this water. I need a plan. Maybe this could speak to me. And I went on there. Then I saw celebrities. I said, well, maybe this might be a good opportunity. I said, Mr. Carr, did I see that name somewhere? I see something. I looked on Waymaker's page. I looked at it. I said, everything that I saw, I saw free. I saw men only. I saw this. I felt like I spent my whole life trying to identify what a man is. And then I ended up on a page that was speaking to men only. I'm trying to, I'm working through this business, but there's no real plan for marketing and strategies. There's no real this and that. And then I saw Blueprint. And then I said, you know what? The only thing that I can do at this point right now is offer myself to be part of something that I always wanted to be a part of, something bigger than just myself and play the role that I could play in it. And I reached out and I said, yo, y'all need some water. <laughs> well, well, Marty, we, we thank you for that. And, 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 and here's, here's the opportunity for you to market that water. Tell the people where they can get be clear water. You get be clear water, be clear h2o.com. And get be clear water. You can get on our social media. Uh, we have Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram, all B K L E A R H2O. Repeat um, it. Repeat all of that again. On the on the website, be clear, B K L E A R H2O.com. 
or on social media. Our angles are Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and TikTok. B-K-L-E-A-R-H-2-O. My children are the CEOs of Be Clear. All three of them you'll see on the website. And uh, everything, the whole journey has started with my children. And they've been very much so a part of every packaging. The boxes, not through a manufacturer. We box them. We put the flyers in them. We ship them off. The labels, they all have a role in it. And uh, so it's a family business. So not only is it veteran-owned, it is nurse-owned, and it is family-owned, and it was children-ran. Well, Marty, we thank you so much uh, for your contribution to the Blueprint Men's Summit. We wish you and Be Clear only the very, very, very best. Yes, and we hope that the people who are listening to this podcast go and order it offline. And I can tell you, it tastes pretty good. And one so, last thank thing. You so much. One last thing before you go, I got you on it. I'm going to pose a question that's very, very hard for me. If you or anybody listening or anyone you know can actually provide mentorship on, for me on this journey or guidance or any type of introspective, I would very much so appreciate it and honor and be humbled enough to accept it with no pride and no resistance to authority. <laughs> well, you got it. I'll do that for you. Thank you. All right then, Marty. Thank you so much. And this has been the Waymaker Fireside Chat with Muhammad Marty from Be Clear. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Muhammad Marty. Remember, you can find Be Clear Water at BeClearH2O.com. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at waymakerjournal.com and be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireshot Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 